And our passage for this week is from Matthew chapter 26. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, we'll be reading verses 17 through 29. Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 29. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. They began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's go uh, to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that we have this opportunity to open your word, to be reminded of what took place on our behalf to make us your own. Lord, as we consider the verses that are before us today, I pray that they would not simply be words that just pass through our minds without any impact, but Lord, that they would resonate in our hearts and that they would cause us to behold a glorious and wonderful and majestic Savior, the perfect Lamb of God. So, Father, would you move in our midst today to cause us to see what we need to see and hear what we need to hear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when it comes to eating, we, we like our meals, don't we? Especially the big ones. Whether it's Thanksgiving Day or Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, whatever it is your tradition is, we enjoy Eating, We enjoy gathering with, with other people, be it family or friends or church family, to enjoy a meal. In fact, this very week, the cattle population will take a big hit when it comes to 4th of July weekend. A lot of people grilling out uh, this coming weekend. But we often celebrate special moments or holidays in a way that puts us around the table with other people, don't we? We, we enjoy eating, we enjoy marking special moments with 
a meal. And no group knew how to celebrate or remember an occasion better than, I would say, the Jewish people. They had many celebrations throughout a given year. And just to name a few of them, we could go to the Old Testament and see that there was what was called the Feast of Weeks, where it was a reminder of God's provision at harvest time, or the Feast of Tabernacles, which marked the wandering of Israel in the wilderness. There was also the celebration that involved the Day of Atonement, which was the highest holy day of the year, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for first himself and then for the sins of the people symbolizing God's provision and atonement for sin. Then there was also the Passover. The very event that we see explained in our text this morning, the the Passover was central to Israel's existence. In fact, it was the central feast of the year commemorating Israel's deliverance from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Since Exodus chapter 12, the people of God had observed Passover every single year. According to Exodus 12, verse 14, we read, This day, the Lord says, shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So here in Matthew chapter 26, the very day before Jesus would be crucified, he makes preparation and gathers with his disciples to observe this Passover. But this Passover would be unlike any other Passover. This Passover would be like unlike any other that had preceded it. In fact, it was going to be a significant turn of events. And as as the table was not only being set, so to speak, to celebrate this yearly memorial, the table was also being set to mark an event that the Old Testament and the entire Gospel of Matthew had been expecting and awaiting. An event that would soon have Jesus hanging on a rugged cross just outside of Jerusalem as he was crucified for the sins of his people. So this Passover was not merely a Passover looking back to Egypt. It was looking to a small hill outside of Jerusalem we know as Calvary. You know, as we consider the Passover event, the Passover looked back to the deliverance of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. And this Passover, which was now going to be really set into place as what we would come to know as the Lord's Supper, as he gives instructions specifically dealing with that in our text, it was going to be the moment that marked the work of Christ. The perfect Lamb of God who would be crucified for for sinners. This too would mark a great deliverance, but I would say an even greater deliverance. Than merely a people from the bondage of slavery, this would mark the, the deliverance of the nations from the bondage of sin. So as we consider that this morning, I want us to to look at several important truths concerning our own deliverance, our own salvation, our own exodus, so to speak, as we look at the Passover, but more specifically as we consider the institution of the Lord's Supper as Jesus refers to this event and begins to give instructions for 
for his disciples? What are the truths that are marked here concerning our own salvation in light of what Jesus and his disciples were going to do? Well, there are several. Let's look at them together. The first truth that we see in light of our own salvation is that our salvation was an event that was sovereignly orchestrated. It was an event that had God's hand all over it from beginning to end. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't take much for one to see, but it's clear here that Jesus had a steady, consistent control of everything that was unfolding and developing, even, even concerning his own betrayal. He was not caught up in events beyond his control. There was no hint of desperation on, behalf of, on the part of Jesus at this point. He wasn't wringing, wringing his hands and, and thinking, what are we going to do? We need a game plan here. Now, the game plan actually involved what was about to take place. We're told that this was the first day of unleavened bread, which was associated with Passover. But as I said earlier, this celebration would be unlike any that had come before it. The Passover celebration, what was that? How did that go? Well, typically Passover was celebrated on the 14th day of the Jewish calendar of the month. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread would, would, would continue from the 15th through the 21st day of the month. So this was not just a moment. This was a, a continued celebration for many days. And so Passover and Unleavened Bread were often seen as, as an event that were together. But Passover marked the first day. Unleavened Bread continued the remaining days. Both feasts commemorated the deliverance of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. Again, you can go to Exodus chapter 12 and see in great detail how that happened and the instructions given to them to commemorate that great deliverance. The original feast of Passover included several elements. I think you have them on the screen. First, it included a roasted lamb. And the lamb was to be a reminder of the blood that was placed over the doorpost of the people of God demonstrating or symbolizing their deliverance and for those families that would take a perfect and unblemished lamb a male lamb and and slaughter the lamb and and would take the blood and 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 put up on the doorpost when the angel of death came through that night and 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 affected the firstborn of every family those covered by the blood were spared that judgment the roasted lamb was a reminder of that the unleavened bread they would have would Recall Israel's haste in leaving. Remember that they were called quickly to go and the unleavened bread was pointing back to that. The bitter herbs that they would have with this meal was a reminder of their suffering in Egypt. And then later on was added the wine. In fact, in best we can tell, most Passovers included four different cups of wine that were drunk throughout the evening symbolizing four promises that God made to his people just before, just prior to their deliverance. And you can see those outlined in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. The four promises say this, The Lord says to his people, I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and I will take you for my people and be your God. And so as the night continued, the four cups symbolizing each of the four promises that God made to them. It was an elaborate meal. It was an elaborate event marking very specifically what had happened on behalf of the people. And this event was exactly what the disciples were preparing for. And listen, it is no coincidence 
that Jesus' pending arrest and crucifixion was about to take place in the midst of this Passover event. As I just, again, we think about the Exodus event, it was a glorious picture of redemption. It was, it was true redemption, physically speaking, for the people of God that were enslaved to Egypt as God brings them out of that bondage. And now this Passover marking that, that, that deliverance. Just think about that. Unless the people of God believed God and followed his directions by applying the blood, they would have perished. They would have been affected by the judgment, at least the firstborn. And so applying the blood from a young male lamb without defect, they would be spared that judgment. But where the blood was seen, the house was spared. The Exodus event was established, and it established the foundational truth that redemption involves not only the release from slavery, but also the shedding of blood as a means of escape from judgment. And so we come to this particular text just the day before Jesus would die. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is about to become the sacrifice that would ultimately lead his people from judgment. Friend, the timing could not be more perfect. God was in sovereign control of these events, and this was not just a you know, this was not just an accident. Even in the details of what happens as Jesus instructs his disciples to secure the location for them to observe Passover. Even in the details, Jesus is controlling and, and, and moving for his purposes. Mark's account is a little more specific, and they were even to find a man, a specific man, carrying a, a jar of water. And when they came to him, they were to tell this man, the teacher says, my time is at hand, I will keep the Passover at your house. That just seems strange, doesn't it? But it just shows how, how detailed it was that, that Jesus was in charge of what was going on. In fact, when he says, my time is at hand, tell this guy that my time is at hand. There are two Greek words for time. One is chronos, which means a general space or succession of time. And the second is, is kairos, which means a specific or predetermined period of time. It's that second word that Jesus uses here. My time, my predetermined time, this specific time that had been established by my Father is now at hand. So as the evening came and Jesus sits down with his disciples, they are doing so in specific response to specific instructions that had been decreed by the Lord. But even as they sat down, notice what Jesus says. When it was evening, verse 20, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. And began to say to one another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man who, whom the Son of Man has betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Even in confirming that Judas is the one that would betray him, Jesus is in complete control of what was happening. There's not a single moment that wasn't under the sovereign grip of God. And 
you, you see that even in the case of Jesus going to the cross for our sin, this, this glorious demonstration of, of what is often des- described as a mystery of God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility coming hand in hand together in this glorious event. In fact, we see it explained in Acts chapter 2 in that very way. Acts chapter 2, in verses 22 and 23 We read this, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. Definite plan, you crucified. God's in control, man's responsible. So Judas did what he did willingly and with pure greed as his motive. He was not a puppet on a string, merely doing something against his will. He wanted to betray Jesus, and he did so willingly. But at the same time, he did so in accordance with the divine plan of God. You say, explain that. I can't. That's, That's the best I can do. God's in control of this great event, and yet these human elements are at play. Friend, this was, this was not, what was about to happen to Jesus even through his betrayal and arrest was, was not a new development in the situation room of heaven. God was not calling all of, the, all of the, the, the leaders of the angelic army together and saying, okay, we've got a problem here. Long ago, we were told, even in Genesis chapter 3, even when the Lord cursed the serpent in the garden, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Even from that moment, God was planning this moment. When the Lord made a covenant with Abram, promising him that he'd become a great nation through which all nations would be blessed, He was looking forward to this day when the Lord called Moses to deliver his people miraculously from their bondage in Egypt. He was setting the stage for a better Moses and a better Exodus, which would come through the blood of Christ. This was no accident, friends. All of this, all of the events were falling into place by sovereign design. Sovereignly orchestrated. The second truth that we see about the salvation that's ours in Christ is that it was sacrificially accomplished. Verses 26 through 28, Jesus explains to them further what was taking place as they were about to eat. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks to to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is now using this Passover event to institute what we call the Lord's Supper. Some people refer to it as the Christian Passover. This Passover obviously is is filled with, with significant symbolism from the past but now wedded together with what was going to happen in the present and which would also take us into the future. It was this this hinge, if you will, that would shine new lights and point us to the cross 
where blood from a different lamb would be spread upon different wooden beams for the deliverance of God's people. It was just as the lambs were slain on the night of Passover in Egypt, the Lamb of God was about to be slain to redeem people from the bondage of sin. It would be a new exodus. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross would be the very act that would create a new covenant community. Jeremiah speaks about that in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This new covenant that he's establishing that's going to be marked by the blood of the Savior. When Jesus is is preparing his disciples here, he's, he's pointing them forward just the next day, but he's pointing them to what was about to take place. And the fact that his death was going to be one of substitution. He is saying, listen, listen to what he says. He said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given things, he gave it to them saying, drink all of it. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you. For you. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You were ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. You and I deserve condemnation and judgment. And yet he took it upon himself for our sake. And just like the Passover feast, this this new feast of sorts, which we would come to know as the Lord's Supper, would now celebrate and commemorate that great and glorious event that that the Old Testament had pointed to and now the New Testament declares that great and glorious day when the Lamb of God would hang upon the cross and shed His blood for the sins of the world. The Lord's Supper is a visible and tangible way for us to be confronted with and reminded of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. I know it exists, but I've never understood why why Christians often shy away from the Lord's Supper. I've never understood that. I've I've heard Christians say before, oh, we're just having the Lord's Supper. I think I'll skip out early. Brother, sister, what, what do you mean? Just having the Lord's Supper. It's important to understand that the Lord's Supper is is a is a meal of sorts for Christians. It's to be taken by believers. It's to be observed by by the family of God. And not only that, it's important that a believer is not walking in in open, unrepentant sin. And so only the person who has received the benefits of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ is the, the one that is in a position to celebrate this meal. Jesus says, this is for you. Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 11 that we are to examine ourselves. So even when we, when we come to the table, it, it's a time of remembrance for believers. But listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, 
It's a time of proclamation. What we are doing in, in observing the Lord's Supper is, is that we're demonstrating through visible, tangible elements what Christ has done. It's a sermon of sorts. It's speaking and, and verbalizing in a way, in a, in a symbolic way, what Jesus has done, that his body was bruised and, and broken and his blood was shed. So that your sins could be forgiven, friends. So, so if you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you've never truly said, you know what, I understand that, that I'm a sinner and I've rebelled against God, I've offended God, I deserve judgment. Because that's the fact for all of us. We are all in that state. We are all under condemnation. We all deserve ju- God's judgment because of our rebellion against Him. If you've never come to that conclusion, then I would encourage you to to continue to read the Scriptures because we are rebels. But God has been merciful and kind and and gracious in that He has sent His own Son to be betrayed, arrested, crucified. And then three days later, raised. So that you can be forgiven, so that you can have a right standing with God if you would simply trust in Him. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, trust in Christ. Quit hoping in yourself. Quit hoping in the world. Place your trust, your faith in Jesus. And he will bring you to himself and he will give you new life. Coming to the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper is a serious matter. I love what John Stott said in his book, The Cross of Christ. He said, the Lord's Supper, which Jesus instituted, was not meant to be a slightly sentimental forget-me-not, but rather a service rich in spiritual significance. This is not a sentimental forget-me-not, friends. I think there are two things that Christians should avoid when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Number one is what I would call a, a carelessness. We could come to this table and and merely see it as a sentimental forget-me-not and and be very careless and very lethargic and very apathetic concerning what we're doing when we take the bread upon our tongue and, and drink the cup and not give one iota of thought to the fact that there was a man called Jesus who was broken and killed for your sins. So understand the the seriousness which must be given to observing something like this. But yet there's also another error, and I think a a warning or something that we should avoid, and and it's it's being oversensitive. I've talked to some people that that say, well, I just don't know if I should take the Lord's Supper. I've got sin in my life. Who in this room doesn't have sin in their life? Raise your hand. This is a meal for sinners. All we're saying is, is for those who are walking in open, unrepentant sin. You know you're in sin, and you refuse to repent. You're not welcome at the table, because it's, it's a meal for sinners who know they've been pardoned, and rejoice and exult in that fact. So don't be oversensitive to think, oh, I've had a bad thought this morning, I can't take the Lord's Supper. That's not what we're, what we're thinking, what we're talking about here. But yet at the same time, we shouldn't be careless and haphazard in approaching the Lord's Supper either. Lord's Supper is critical because several things. Number one, it reminds us of Christ's substitutionary death. He took our place. He died in our place so that our sins could be forgiven. 
It proclaims his death. While it is for the believer, it holds out hope for the unbeliever. You too can come to the table is basically what it says. You too can come. You can enjoy this, this feast when you place your faith in Christ. It nourishes us spiritually. John Piper put it this way. He said, nothing shows the worth and preciousness of Christ so much as when we come to him to feed our hungry souls. The Lord's Supper is commemorating the very act of substitution that Jesus died in your place. He shed his blood for your very sins. Sacrificially accomplished, Jesus died to accomplish what you can never accomplish on your own. Do you realize that, friend? You cannot accomplish salvation on your own. If you think you're just, you're just going to get to heaven by, by, by outweighing the good over the bad, and that Jesus is going to let you in, listen, he's not going to go by your standard. He's going to go by his standard, which is perfection. He doesn't work on that scale. We're all ruined. Our only hope is faith in Christ, who makes us whole and cleanses us. We need Christ, and friends, we need the Lord's Supper, not as a means to salvation. We need the Lord's Supper as Christians because we need to be regularly reminded of just how bad we are and how great Christ is. Number three, it will also be surely consummated. Our salvation, sovereignly orchestrated, sacrificially accomplished, and surely consummated. Look at verse 29. I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Here in verse 29, Jesus is not pointing back to Exodus. He's not just pointing to the very next day. He's pointing to a future. He's pointing to a day when we will be gathered with him, when when his kingdom is finally consummated in its fullness. Most scholars actually think that he's referring to the fourth cup here. Remember I told you there are four cups involved, the cup, four cups of wine involved, and that he's referring to the fourth cup. He's saying, I'm not going to drink this one. I'm going to hold this one to when we're all together in my kingdom in the future. Certainly it's a reference to the great messianic banquet that Isaiah describes in Isaiah 25, verses 6 and following, where we're told on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples All peoples, a a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. There's coming a day when the people of God will be gathered together around this great banquet celebrating the, 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 the salvation that we all have enjoyed through the finished work of Christ, and we're all going to be gathered together on that day to feast, to celebrate what has been accomplished. And he is anticipating that day when we will sit with him at the great banquet. Listen to this. The encouraging thing to all of this is this. Jesus knows exactly who you are. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows just how flawed and how sinful and how selfish and prideful and dirty you are. He knows the same about me. And he, listen, He is still willing to sit down at the table with us. That's good news. 
he's still willing to sit down at the table with us and to feast with us. Friends, we often talk about how the Lord's Supper is a look back. But friends, it's also a look forward. Paul even says in his account of, of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, he says, he's quoting Jesus, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. What's the rest of it? Until he comes. There's yet that future gaze. There's that future hope of expectancy. That there's coming a day when the Lord comes again to make all things new and to gather us around the table together. In some ways, the Lord's Supper is merely an appetizer saying there's more to come. There's more to come. Everything has been accomplished to get you there. The blood of Jesus, the body of Jesus was slaughtered on your behalf. If you trust in him, you will be there on that day. Friends, you and I need the Lord's Supper not only to remind us of what Christ did to prepare the way to heaven, but also to look forward to what he's preparing for us in heaven. You know, that night the table was being set for Passover. But Jesus knew that it was being set in light of a greater table to come. A greater feast that would mark the beginning of an eternity of joy. When we are all finally gathered from every tribe, tongue, race, na ta nation, people, language, every one of us are gathered together, the redeemed as the family of God. Table is set, and the table has been set. The invitations are going out. Friend, the only question I have for you is, will you be there? Will you be there? We have a great Savior who has done everything necessary to give you life, and to give you hope. Have you trusted in him? Are you walking in him? Are you loving him? Are you delighting in him? table has been set let's enjoy the feast today but also in anticipation of that day which is yet to come let's pray father we thank you we thank you lord for the grace that we've been given we thank you for the hope that's ours through the finished work of our great and glorious savior lord we know that apart from you we would be still in our sins. We would remain in our sins. We would remain without hope. But it was because of your grace and your love and your, your commitment that you sent your one and only Son to be the perfect Lamb that was slain so that our sins could be forgiven, so that hope can be established, and so that life can be known. Father, we thank you for this, this reminder this morning. We thank you for this table that we have to celebrate today in the Lord's Supper. And we thank you for that night that Jesus, when he gathered with the disciples and explained exactly how everything was going to happen. Many of them still were, were confused and many of them still had no true understanding of what was about to happen. 
Father, we now know. We now have the, the story. We have, the, we have all of the details and, and things put together for us. And so, Father, what a, what a glorious celebration we can, we can enjoy today because of how you have been faithful to your promise and fulfilled your word to bring hope and salvation to a lost and dying world. Father, my prayer this morning is that if there are people in this room that do not yet know Christ, Father, would you move in their hearts? Would you expose to them their need for Jesus and help them to see that he has done everything they need to have life, to have their sins forgiven, and to have an invitation to that great and glorious banquet that we long for and await. And for your people gathered here today, Lord, I pray that this would yet be yet another reminder an encouragement to our souls, that our souls and, and our lives would be strengthened as a result of hearing today what we've heard in, in a moment, partaking in this Lord's Supper together. So Father, would you move in our hearts and help us to respond appropriately to you today in a manner that's pleasing to you. We thank you, Father, for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.